So this week we continue our kind of meandering journey uh, through the Psalms with a look at Psalm 128. Now this, this is a wisdom psalm. And a wisdom psalm is described as a psalm that provides instruction in right living and right faith in the tradition of the other wisdom writings of the Old Testament. Now, there's a word in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament that shows up often when talking about God, and that word is fear. It shows up frequently in the Old Testament, and it shows up in our passage this morning. And we're going to take some time today and talk about the fear of the Lord. Fear God. What, is, what does that mean? How, how are we to understand it? It can be kind of a hard concept for us to grasp. But fear of the Lord, his worthiness of it, and the ramifications on grace and hope for each of us are pretty awesome. Let's read Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls this morning as you speak through your word. pray this in your name. Amen. Fear. So growing up, like, I got scared pretty easy. Like, I was that kid that when I would go and do, like, slumber parties over at my friend's house, like, I, I don't know if anyone else was this kid, but, like, we would do the slumber party, and I would, I would go over, and everything was great until bedtime, and then I would be, like, laying on the floor in my friend's room, and I could see, like, the shadow of the trees, like, outside playing on the wall, and my mind would start to go a little crazy because I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm just a little uptight. I'm not, I'm not really sure, especially like as a kid, more so maybe than now, which may be shocking. But I, I would like, my brain would just start going crazy. And it's like, oh no, like what's happening with my family? Is that tree that's outside that's making the shadows on the wall? Like, is that guy getting my family? Like, is everything okay at home? Or am I going to be like, what's going And so most birthday parties, like up until like when I was like, up until 8, 9, maybe even 10. Like, if there was a slumber party, if there was a sleepover, I was probably going home that night. Like, I was calling mom, being like, Mom, you got to come get me. I can't take it. I'm, I'm too scared. I'm, I'm too scared. I don't want to be away from you. I don't want to be away from the comfort of home. I'm just freaking out. So I was, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe someone else like, at least had a kid that was like that, or maybe it's like that. I hope I'm not the only one. But, but that was just something that I did. And I mean, I remember having kids come to our place when I was older and I felt a little better about myself because their kids were like, I got a call, I can't stay. And I was like, great, that's, that's, that's fine. I feel justified in my fear as a baby now too. But it's scary, fear. How do we understand the word 
fear. Our perception of the word fear is, is it's largely negative, right? Like fear isn't a good thing. And sure, maybe you go to the movies to get freaked out or, you know, or we go to haunted houses on, on Halloween with a bunch of friends because there's something exciting about getting freaked out or scared in groups. You know, we get, we get that adrenaline rush going and, and yeah, this is, this is great. I, I don't necessarily particularly feel that way, but there is something that, that like we go to those things to get that rush, to get that, that feeling. But by and large, most of the time, fear is seen as a bad thing. Fear. I remember like being told a while ago, I'm mean, probably back when I was like in high school, that for those of us who live in the United States, there are like there's two the, the, the two biggest fears in life were the second one, the runner-up, right? The runner-up was death. And the first fear was public speaking. Now, according to a study at Chapman University that they did earlier this year, that is no longer true. People are not scared of public speaking so much anymore. The number one fear that Americans have at this point in time is actually political corruption, which is kind of interesting. But as I was perusing the list of things that Americans are scared the most of, I found one that it kind of surprised me. 9.5% of people in America are scared of flying. Flying. There are people that are more scared of flying than there are of ghosts or of their significant other cheating on them. A USA Today, in an article written in February 2017 about car versus plane safety, came to the conclusion that, statistically speaking, flying is far safer than driving. And yet we're, we're really scared of this. Like, flying is, like, driving, no one's scared of driving. Uh, at least it wasn't on the list, you know, it went down, like, pretty far on the list. Driving didn't show up anywhere. Flying showed up rather high. Nobody's scared of driving. Everyone's scared of flying. But statistically speaking, flying is way safer than driving is. In a, in a different article, in a separate article, Patrick Smith, the commercial airline pilot who flies Boeing 757s and 767s, writes about how he has noticed that a fly, like the flyer's number one anxiety is turbulence. So much about it seems dangerous, right? But Smith argues that from the perspective of the pilot, turbulence is often just like a mere blip. It's, it's like nothing. It's like a Saturday at the park, Right? For all intents and purposes, Smith writes, a plane cannot be flipped upside down, thrown into a tailspin, or otherwise flung from the sky by even the mightiest gust or air pocket. Conditions might be annoying and uncomfortable, but the plane is not going to crash. Turbulence is an aggravating nuisance for everybody, including the crew, but it's also, for lack of a better term, very normal. It's super normal. From a pilot's perspective, it is ordinarily seen as a convenience issue, not a safety issue. When a flight changes altitude in search of smoother conditions, this is by and large in the interest of comfort. Like, I know that they know that, but it doesn't really feel that when you're in the plane, right? And, like, you're rocking. I remember being in, in an airplane one time, and we had to be in, like, lower air. I remember watching... Like looking at, like we're just hitting some real turbulence and they just like passed out the Coke, right? So this dude had this like glass of Coke sitting on his, uh, on his tray 
And we went down and I watched the cup. It looked like it just lifted into the air and then dumped. And I was like, yeah, I don't like this. This is not a good time. Like you're out there and the wings are just going like this. Yeah. That, I mean, what if there's a loose bolt, right? Like that's, that's probably not like, don't, I, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of flying personally. But uh, the pilots aren't worried about the wings falling off. They're trying to keep their customers relaxed and everybody's coffee where it belongs. They find that air for convenience. It's not a safety issue. In the worst of it, you probably imagine, you know, the pilot's in the front in a sweaty lather, the the captain's barking orders, hands tied on the wheel as the ship lists from one side to another, but nothing could really be further from the truth. Actually, Smith concludes, while the passengers are fretting about turbulence, the pilots are having a casual conversation about their morning orange juice. The USA Today article continues its conclusion by stating that though well, you know, flying is way safer than, than driving, flying may feel more dangerous because risk perception is based on more than facts. Our understanding of risk, our perception of risk, how we view risk, which correlates to fear, is based on more than facts. Driving affords more personal control, making it feel safer. In a plane, you're at the mercy of the pilot. You're at the mercy of the winds, right? Everything's like if the wind is buffeting the plane and it's moving from here to there, it's like this dude does not have control. The pilot is not in control of the plane right now, and that freaks me out. When we're driving in our car, you know, like, Maybe we'll hit that puddle and we'll go, but then tires will catch and it's okay. You know, you, you, you're at the wheel. You feel more in control. But that plane, it's moving around. We don't have that there. And while we're the ones freaking out in the back, you know, we're like, oh no, what's happening? They don't got control anymore. They don't, you know, they're not running the plane at this point in time. The pilots are just sitting up front enjoying some small talk. Fear. We don't want to be scared of things. We want to feel safe. We want to feel in control. And yet, our passage today makes fear look like a good thing, like, like something we're supposed to feel, an emotion we're supposed to possess, that it's, it's actually good to be fearful. For it says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. What? Like, how, how are we supposed to understand that? Like, isn't God supposed to be a loving God? Isn't, isn't God supposed to be a God of hope and joy? And, and doesn't the Bible tell us that he wants what's best for us? I mean, sure, there will be trouble and hardship and, and hard times. But that ultimately, all of that, that bad stuff, that hard stuff, will be used to glorify God? Why am I supposed to fear God? How do we reconcile a God of love and a God we're supposed to fear? The divisions in in the church are many, right? Divisions in church are many. and, And one of those divisions take place between those who focus on the fear of God and those who focus on the love of God. As if they can't mix, right? Like they're two separate camps. 
The fear of God camp focuses on God's role as the judge while, while we're the defendant. And unless we have done what we're supposed to do, unless we have lived the moral life that we are supposed to have lived, then the verdict is hell. The gavel comes down our immoral, on our immoral existence and, and you know, we're sentenced to hell. This stance is often most represented by the old-fashioned fire and brimstone preaching of our not-so-distant past. Scare people. Instill the fear of God in them. And they will turn from their, from their evil ways. And then the love of God camp focuses on, on God's love for man. They can't believe that a God of love could possibly condemn anyone to hell. So no matter how you've lived your life, no matter what you believe, God is going to keep you from eternal torment. Because he loves you. There are a ton of different examples of this, but one that comes to mind readily for me is the, the Jesus is my homeboy movement of, of a few years back. God loves me, man. He's my homeboy. He's got my back. And no matter what may sin may be, you know, no matter what I've, I've done, he's got me. We're good. He's my boy. We're set. Neither side seeks to reconcile with the other. They've chosen the version of God that they most identify with. You know, they've, they've got on that pendulum that, that swings back and forth. And when it's at the peak of the side that they like, they've jumped off. Entrenching themselves in the camp of their choosing. How do we reconcile a God of love and a God to be feared? Because there needs to be reconciliation of the two sides. There, there has to be. Because for while God is a, is a just God, and he cannot abide sin, he is also a God of love, and he loves all his people. There must be reconciliation of the two sides. A deeper look at the word fear is needed here because something gets lost in translation. My mom... Uh, she's Norwegian. She used to speak sometimes in, in Norwegian around the house. And so the kids would like ask her, like we would ask her, Mom, like what's this word in Norwegian? Or, or what's that word in Norwegian, right? Like that was just something that we would, we would throw out. And there were times when Mom would, would have a word and she'd be like, well, actually, no, this word means something else. Like actually English doesn't have a word for what this Norwegian word is. There just there isn't an English word that exists for, for this particular word. And in our text this morning, the word that is translated as fear is the word yarah. And there really isn't an English word for it because it, it kind of has two meanings. Two meanings that we lump into the word fear, but it, it's got two different ways of looking at it. When, when referring to a peer, someone who is you know, of the same station as us, someone that, that is on like, you know, our, our peers, Someone that, that, that we're familiar with, someone who we see as a peer. It means what we typically think of fear meaning. But when it's referring to a person of high position, it takes on the idea of standing in awe or reverence before that individual. We see this in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted and being attended by, by all these angels and the, 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 the trail of his robe filling the temple. And, and, and Isaiah cries out in Isaiah 6, verse 5, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
Isaiah recognizes the greatness of God and his own unworthiness to even be in the company of God. Fear. Yurah. One word with different yet similar meanings. So again, how do we reconcile a God of love and a God to be feared, even if that fear is a reverent awe? That's still kind of standoffish, right? It's, reverent awe still feels distant, unapproachable. Still not really a great description of the God that, that the Bible tells us about. There's a conversation that takes place in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that sheds some light on this subject and helps us with this, this reconciliation. The four kids have, have come to Narnia. Edmund's gone his own way. Narnia's a land of, of talking animals and forever winter. The white witch is, is the one that's kind of in control. And these, these three sons of Adam, as they call them, the three kids, they, they get found by the beavers and they get taken in. And, and the beavers tell them that we're going to go take you to Aslan. And the kids are trying to figure out like, who this Aslan character is. He's, he's the God character in the book. But who is this Aslan character? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion, says Mr. Beaver. Oh, says Susan, the older sister. I thought he was a man. You know, the way we were talking about him, I, I thought he was a man. Is, is he quite safe then? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Susan immediately recognizes that there might be some risk in meeting and interacting with a lion. I think we would understand that as well, right? Like, lions are lions. They're huge cats, muscular, strong, proud, and and vicious. And if we can recognize that about lions, how do we overlook that fact about God? This is the most powerful, amazing, fantastic being in existence. So incredible that we cannot even grasp him. You know, we can't begin to understand him. And there is something scary about a being that is that huge, that overwhelming, that capable. There's something like fearful about that. And just as we would look at a lion and say, you know, it's probably not a great idea to jump into a cage with a beast that has us that outmatched. It's understandable and important to have that reaction to God, to be fearful in the presence of God. He isn't safe, but he's good. But he's good. And that's the other side of the coin, isn't it? How does it feel to know that a being that possesses more power than we can possibly imagine is using the full force of his power for our benefit? He is focused on us. He is chasing us down with a love that is so great that that we can't understand it, right? Our sin stood in the way and he overcame it by taking the punishment for it. By paying the price that we could not, and all he asks is belief. 
Belief that he is God. Belief that he is our creator and our savior. He is calling us into relationship with him through that belief, through that faith that he instills in us. And then, after we believe, he then begins to shape and mold us into the people that he longs for us to be. And sometimes the journey with him is scary. And we feel like we don't have any control. We're back on the plane and the turbulence is rough. And we're freaking out. But our pilot doesn't get on the speaker and tell us he's going to look after, you know, look, look for some safer air. That he's, he's going to lower or raise our altitude so that the trip would be more comfortable. No, our pilot's actually sitting right beside us. Holding our hand, comforting us, wrapping us up in his love. And he rides out the turbulence with us. Comforting us the whole time. Carrying us the whole time. God is huge and amazing and scary. There's something scary about a being so magnificent that we can't even understand him fully. There is something so incredibly overpowering as we realize that all of his power is bent on us for our betterment. Not because we deserved it. Not because we earned it. Because he is God and he loves us. And what happens when we fear God, when we honor him as the Lord of our life, when we believe in him, when we allow ourselves to be worked on by the Holy Spirit, forming us into what God wants us to be, not this this far left where it's like, ah, it's all good, but, but no, because God is working on us. He is shaping us into what he wants us to be. What happens when we fear God? What does our passage say? Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be with you, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. We will be blessed. Not because of the actions we have taken, but because of what God has done for us and our belief in Him and those actions. You know, as you leave here today, be encouraged in the truth that the Lord of all the earth, the being we stand in reverent awe of, loves you so much that He is using His power not to crush a rebellious sinner but to save them, to call out to them and to redeem them. As you leave today, I pray that you would be able to have the slightest inkling of how much God loves you.